The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. This is the Tribune Audio Network. From the heart of motorsports in North Carolina, the Fox 8 sports team presents NASCAR Dirty Air. Fast friends, dangerous enemies. And now, here's your host, Kevin Connolly, along with the Fox 8 sports team. There's a saying about never meet your heroes, they'll always disappoint you. Baloney. Mike Joy has spent the better part of the last 40 years reporting on his racing heroes. Race drivers are, by and large, just as genuine people as you can find. Checkered flag waving, it's over, it's Earnhardt! Most of them really don't have outsized egos, and most of them have great senses of humor. They're fun people to be around. But that doesn't mean his career has always been a smooth ride. Kale especially was intimidating, and he was in the persona of Cale Yarborough, kick-ass race car driver. 20 years of trying, 20 years of frustration. Joy has witnessed the highest of highs and the lowest of lows in the sport of NASCAR from his front row seat. We get to help educate, inform, and entertain America about what a great sport this is. So how could you call that work? Generations of fans have listened to his voice, and so will we on this edition of Fox 8's Dirty Air. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our second episode of the Fox 8 podcast, Dirty Air. I'm Kevin Conley, along with our producer, Kevin Wren, and we are joined today. Real treat today. Fox announcer, play-by-play voice of NASCAR, Mike Joy. Mike, appreciate you being here today. Sure. Thank you. I mean, you know, Fox 8 covers the biggest TV market for NASCAR, ratings-wise, in the country. So, absolutely. And uh, we've had an opportunity in the past to uh, share some conversations with you, and you are full of all <laughs> kinds of NASCAR knowledge and, and history, and you're, you're really a bridge sort of to the, from, the, from the growth of NASCAR to the, to the current era of NASCAR. You're, the, you're sort of that bridge, and, and over the course of the next few minutes, we, we want to share with our audience some of those great stories sure. that you have had an opportunity to witness. Again, you often hear many times you have a front row seat to history, and you certainly have had a front row seat to some of the greatest moments in NASCAR racing. My first question really would be, how was the, what was the connection to NASCAR? What drew you to NASCAR as a young announcer? I was uh, really excited about Trans Am and Can-Am racing, road racing, in the late 60s, early 70s. Started to cover some of those races, even in college. Uh, I'd get a press pass for the college radio station to go to go to Lime Rock or Watkins Glen or Bridgehampton or Briar and up in the Northeast and, and see those races. Uh, a friend of mine had tickets to the local short track, quarter mile paved oval, beaten bang, coupe bodied cars, not jalopies, but they kind of looked like it. And wow, that was exciting. And there's 6,000 people sitting in the stands screaming and it's like, wow, it'd be fun to be a part of this. And I got a call from that racetrack the next uh, summer their regular announcer was also an author, 
and had book tours to do for uh, his publishing company. And could I come and help them out since I was doing college sports play-by-play? Could I come help them out and do PA? Um, I said, no. I said, how could that be any fun? Those cars only turn left. You know, I mean, what's the big deal? And they said, well, why don't you come to the track Saturday night and, and see what it, take a look, see what it's all about. Wow, that was exciting. That was, it was terrific. And that's how it started in August of 1970. And I've never looked back. I've, I've had other things to do uh, during various periods of my life, but I've always, uh, just always been involved in racing, either with a microphone or a, or a steering wheel. And how did, the, how did you make the transition from Connecticut down to the south and really get involved in NASCAR? At the very biggest races at all these small tracks in New England, uh, they'd bring Ken Squire in, the voice of CBS, to do the public address for some of the big, big events. Ken and I started working together. Uh, that was very enjoyable. Um, then when I moved to Stafford Speedway, which was owned by the Arute family, uh, Jack Arute was already working part-time for Motor Racing Network Radio. Ken was the anchor with Barney Hall. And they heard enough of what I did and worked with me enough to say, you know, we, we could use you as a, a turn announcer, a stringer. So. Uh, Jack and I embarked on a path of what we called deficit announcing, where they'd pay us a fee and give us a hotel room and a plane ticket, and otherwise we were on our own. We always came home with less money than we left with after you pay for the <laughs> rental car and meals. But what an education. And, and just what a, what a wonderful look into the sport. And a couple of years after that, uh, Daytona hired me full-time to do public relations for the Speedway and then go announce races for MRN on weekends. Ken Squire had, had a lot to do with, with um, where you are in your, in your career. With an awful lot of people. He was a great mentor. Um, probably the best encouragement he ever gave me was to stop trying to be him. There's only one Ken Squire. He's, mm -hmm. he's a wonderful wordsmith, got a great way of making heroes out of ordinary people. And I realized I would just have to find my own way and find my own style. But thanks to Ken Squire, Barney Hall, and Ned Jarrett, the three biggest influences uh, in my life, I was able to do that and, you know, then stick around for the next 40-some years. Three very big influences Absolutely. just in broadcasting yes. radio, television of NASCAR, you know, really to, to the masses. Um, we have some, some video that we would like to show you, some of NASCAR's... Uh, Iconic races. All right, well, let me set this up. This is 1976 at Daytona. This is the last lap. Uh, Richard Petty inside of David Pearson in the white car, the Pure Later Mercury, the Wood Brothers, Richard in the STP Dodge. I'm standing on pit road right behind Leonard Wood. We can't see what's happening. All we can hear is, again, Ken Squire over the PA system talking about what happens when Petty tries to drop low and slingshot Pearson one last time for the win. How about 750 yards to go? Oh! It's an extraordinary straightaway. They did hit. Petty oh! smashes into the wall. Will he come across the start-finish line? Close to the grass. Downey tries to shut him off. Kale's in the grass. Kale loses it. He tries to pull it back. Downey side by side. They make contact. Both head toward the wall. They hit the wall in turn number three. Pearson's going to win it. Oh, Bashman, he wins the race. And there's a fight. Between Kale Yarborough and Donnie Allison, the tempers 
overflowing. They're angry. They know they have lost. You have 76 and 79. What you heard on the 76 tape was Bill Fleming of ABC and uh, Jackie Stewart trying to trying to get in there uh, and and describe what had happened because when when Richard pulled back up in front of David Pearson, he hadn't cleared him. I can't tell you David's comment about what happened, but uh, <laughs> but it all worked out. And and you know David had the presence of mind to dump the clutch, feather the throttle, keep the engine running. Richard's car stalled. So David chugged across the line. So here's 79 in the back straightaway, and I'm up on top of a scaffold in turn two for MRN. You heard Gary Gerald in turn three explain everything that was happening there. And they all crashed down, and right about this point, uh, Gerald says, we'll have a new leader. And Jack Arute on the radio says, they're in turn two in front of Mike Choi. And I went, oh, oops. And I turned around, had to look at turn two, and, I, and you can hear the surprise in my voice. It's Richard Petty. I had no idea who was in third. Right. I, you know, we were watching the crash, watching Donnie and Kale come to grief up there in turn three. And the funny thing about that, it was Richard Petty, Darrell Waltrip, A.J. Foyt. Darrell's car was running on seven cylinders. He didn't have enough to pass Richard. A.J. Foyt's spotter that day was Paul Page of ABC because Page had been there to call the IROC race on Friday. And A.J. says, Page, you've called, you called enough races. You know what's going on. Get up there. Uh, get up there on the roof and spot for me. <laughs> and with about three or four laps to go, Foyt calls Paige. He says, he's Paige, he says, this thing's pushing like a dump truck. He says, I'm tired of fighting it. Can we catch the leaders? And Paul goes, no, no, they're, they're, they're a straightaway ahead. They're way too far in front. You'll never catch them. Well, then I'm just going to sit here and ride because fifth place doesn't pay a whole lot less than third, and I'm tired of fighting this thing. And he could have been fighting for the win. As it turned out, you just never know. That's true. Um, that's but true. that's the way the race ended, Petty, Waltrip by a car length and Foyt. Yeah, we put 1976 and 1979 together for a particular reason. Okay. They were two moments that sort of propelled NASCAR racing really from that sort of southern niche sport into the national spotlight. You know, the 1979 Daytona 500 was the first one that was broadcast live. Um, there was a big snowstorm in the Northeast. So people were sort of trapped inside their homes. And only had three channels. And that's right. They only from. had three channels to choose from. And that was really the introduction for a lot of people into NASCAR racing. Can we understate how important those particular races were sort of in the growth of NASCAR? You, you, you can't overstate it. You can't. Um, the 76 finish in front of a huge crowd on ABC TV was just pretty unbelievable that, that two drivers trying to win the sport's biggest race would risk it all and crash in the last corner of the last lap after racing 499 miles without incident. And then in 79, with a huge national audience on TV plus radio, Donnie and Kale had gotten together earlier in that race. And I think, I think Donnie, at least Donnie, had been a lap down previously, all prior to that. And they came down that backstretch, and they both had the attitude of refuse to lose, which then became, if I can't win it, he's not going to either. And uh, Bobby had been about 20 car lengths ahead of them, almost a lap down. And so Bobby had to come around twice to complete the race, and then pull over, pull over in the grass to. Uh, he was the third man Donnie. in. He was the third man in. Yeah. But that is, uh, you know, when you when you see videos of NASCAR history, 
those two events and the fight, you know, that they rank right up there as one and two. I think more than any other single day up to 2001, 1979's Daytona 500 moved the American consciousness toward stock car racing. I'm interested in what it was like for you as a, a young announcer, you know, just at MRN. You started freelancing in 1975, mm-hmm. I believe. Yep. Um, what was it like for you as a young guy to be around David Pearson, Richard Petty, you know, Carol Yarborough, I mean, the absolute legends of this sport? Well, Ken Squire had done a great job because, to me, they were larger than life. The idea that you could strap into a car after having a conversation with your crew chief and strap into a car and go out there and run 200 miles an hour inches apart with everything at risk was, I mean, that was big. These fellows were absolute heroes in my book. Kale especially was intimidating. I'd go with a, I'd go with a microphone and a tape recorder, have to ask questions of him. He was always good. He always gave good answers. But there wasn't a lot of, it was very matter of fact, there wasn't a lot of chit chat, there wasn't a lot of friendly, you know, friendliness to it, but he was just, he was doing his job. And he was in the persona of Cale Yarborough, kick-ass race car driver. Now he's he's a good friend. I mean, we became, it was great to become good friends. There's a saying about never meet your heroes, they'll always disappoint you, baloney. Race drivers are, by and large, just as genuine people as you can find. Uh, They're concerned about the same things you're concerned about, and most of them really don't have outsized egos, and most of them have great senses of humor. Mm -hmm. They're fun fun people to be around. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can sit at dinner. I can sit at dinner and listen to Donnie Allison needle his brother Bobby all day (laughs) and sit there and go, well, my brother says, and you know he's just needling him, but they're best friends as well. And you can't be best friends with somebody fender to fender at 200 miles an hour. But then, after the race, maybe you can. What's the next piece of video that we're going to show? This is 1989, <laughs> no. Daytona 500. This is okay. you and Daryl Walter in victory lane. Now, before you roll this, you're starting right at the moment where I have lost control of this <laughs> video. Okay? Daryl's staring straight at the camera. I'm posing a question, and he gives me that look with Stevie right next to him, and I know, okay, let's see what's going to happen here because I've just lost all control. Go ahead. Here we go. Oh, I won the Daytona 500. I won the Daytona 500. Daryl, how long? Wait, wait, wait. This is the, this is the Daytona 500, isn't it? You better. Don't tell me it is. Thank God. How many years and how long and how hard have you tried to get right here? 17 years. 17 years this year. But yeah, I'd lost all control of that interview. It was, it was the DW show um, from then on. Tell us about Daryl Walter back then. I mean, was he always that colorful personality? And always. He was kind of a getting to be a fan favorite on up in his career by that point. Before this, I'm interested in knowing what Jaws was like. They called him Jaws. I'm interested in knowing what that guy was like. When Daryl burst on the scene, he, he said, I know I'm going to have to be different from the usual Richard Petty, Bobby Allison, Cale Yarbrough. And he quickly became a favorite of the media because he was very quotable. And he was the first driver to seek out the media. We were at North Wilkesboro one day, raining like crazy, everything at the track was canceled. Nobody, drivers hadn't even, drivers had left the track. 
all the writers sit in the press box. What are we going to write about? Boy, I don't know. Anybody got any news? Anybody got a nugget? And the door opens. Hey, guys, what's going on? And it's Daryl. And boom, everybody just wrapped attention. Daryl sat there and told stories. Everybody had something to write about and, and had a story to tell. Uh, and that's how he was. Now, the problem was that on race morning or the day before, Daryl would talk about our sports heroes and say, well, yeah, Dave Pearson, I'm going to whip him today. And Cale Yarborough, I mean, you know, I'm, man, I'm going to lap Cale. And Richard Petty, hey, I'm going to be side by side with him, but I'm going to leave him in the dust. Daryl would say things like this and alienate a lot of fans. Worse, the next day he might do it. And that would alienate them some more. So Daryl wore the black hat in NASCAR for quite a while. Finally, I think it was maybe when Rusty Wallace dumped him in the all-star race. Mm -hmm. Daryl got rid of the black hat. It transferred to, to Rusty, and Daryl really did become a fan favorite. Sure. The next thing we'd love to show you is uh, the 1998 Daytona 500, mm -hmm. which means a lot to a lot of people. Let's, let's go ahead and play that. Labonte up high. Earnhardt uses the lap car of Rick Bass to the, as a pick. 20 years of trying, 20 years of frustration. Dale Earnhardt will come to the caution flag to win the Daytona 500. Finally. Every man on every crew has come out to the edge of pit lane to congratulate the man who has dominated everything there is to win in this sport, except this race, until today. Did you come up with that, uh, the 20 years line on, on the fly? On the fly. That's amazing. Yep, on the fly, that was it. We, two, two things really worked in our favor that day. Uh, one was our historian, Greg Fielden, very noted author of books on NASCAR history, and Patrick Perrin, who still works with Fox in, in the same capacity as sometimes as pit producer and sometimes as researcher. They came up with all the stats of Dale in the 500 up to that point, what he had done, what he hadn't done. We found, for example, that there were only three individual laps of the race he had not led. Two laps in the 90s and, lap two, of course, lap 200, the final lap. And, you know, by the end of that day, he'd led them all. And Dale finally got that monkey off his back. The other thing was, usually, right after the finish, we go through the top part of the finishing order and we cut to commercial. We come back for victory lane. Uh, Jim Cornell was our uh, associate director that day, and he said to Lance Barrow, the producer, he said, don't go to break, don't go to break. Something's happening here. And he saw all those people coming out to pit lane. And had it not been for Jim, we would have missed that moment of Earnhardt being greeted by the world's longest receiving line. And you can hear the emotion in yeah. your voice. Oh, yeah. it's Because it first and foremost, rare. I think you're a fan. Sure. And to, yeah. see a, to see a moment like that and then have to describe it, um, how can you not get emotional? Yeah. And you always wonder as a, as a broadcaster in a live event, you want to make sure you're not saying too much. There are a lot of moments that you want to let breathe. But that one, coming down pit road to that greeting was so unprecedented. Mm -hmm. Never seen anything you like couldn't, it. Never, you just could not, couldn't let that go. Yeah, obviously we just showed uh, and shared the, the iconic win by mm -hmm. Dale Earnhardt. At the opposite end of the emotional spectrum, 
was the very first broadcast of Fox, 2001. Yeah. Um, what a, a, a difficult day um, when Dale Earnhardt was killed at Daytona in the last lap of the, of the 500. Can you put into words what that experience was like um, in the moment sure. and not really getting a tremendous amount of information because you're still on the air you're, and you guys knew it was serious, but, but take us back to that moment and, and how you guys tried to, to get through that particular event. I mean, on the one hand, we had the story of Michael winning right. and, and, and his teammate Dale Jr. running second, which was the story that that Daryl wanted to concentrate on. Of course, his brother just won the race. With all of us having a great concern for Dale, the accident did not look that serious. We'd seen accidents like that before. Um, but we saw Kenny Schrader running to the car and motioning for help right away. And when I saw that, I had two conflicting thoughts. Uh, and you always have to balance the possibilities at either end of the spectrum and be mindful of who's watching at home. So on the one hand, um, Dale could have been unconscious. He could have had, let's say, a, a facial laceration or something that would have caused a lot of bleeding and, and caused great alarm, but not be badly hurt. And on the other hand, he could be badly hurt. We know that his mom and, and other relatives, family, friends are watching at home. So we certainly don't want to say too much. On the other hand, we have to present the possibility that this is very serious. And in the booth next door, in the NASCAR booth, it's like they'd pulled down a curtain. Nobody, nobody was talking to us, nobody would answer us, but there were a lot of ashen faces in that booth next door. So we got really frustrated because we couldn't get any information from anybody. That was difficult. Not that we wanted to tell the story or break the story. That wasn't for us to do. That, was, that, that would be the news that would come later. But what we wanted to do was properly set the tone and try to narrow that very, very wide range of possibilities, and we couldn't. Even with that shot that everyone remembers of that ambulance leaving slowly, mm -hmm. absent any traffic, right. slowly to the hospital, we still didn't know. Now, we knew on the one hand that if Dale was, was conscious and mobile, he would get himself to Victory Lane. He'd tell the ambulance driver, don't take me out that gate, take <laughs> me to Victory Lane. Right. You know? And they would have. Mm -hmm. But we just didn't know, and that's what made our job the hardest. Some of the, the iconic moments or vi visual images that I remember from that, the ambulance shot that you mentioned, and Dale Earnhardt Jr. running. And when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is bad. Yep. I mean, and that, at that point, I was not in Daytona, I was back here working, and we immediately started preparing for something that eventually did happen, yep. you know, that the word came out that he was killed. It was, I mean, we've had these in auto racing. You know, it was like, like losing Joe Weatherly at Riverside, um, Jim Clark at Hockenheim, the best Formula One driver of the day, Ayrton Senna. You just 
don't think it can happen to the best. Right. Until it does. He truly is and was a one of a kind. Yes, he was. Um, yeah. And he had that persona, you know, where he sometimes was difficult to, to approach, sometimes very difficult to answer questions. What was your relationship with him and, and, you know, what, what's maybe your favorite moment that you can share about Dale Earnhardt Sr.? Well, I started out kind of on the wrong side of him because, you know, Barney and I were broadcasting MRN and Dale talked about his style of racing, which uh, was self-described as framing and bamming. <laughs> so I picked up on that and, and uh, he told Barney once he wanted to talk to me because he thought I was overusing that. And I said, Dale, I said, I'll, okay, I get that. I said, but my obligation is to the listeners. I've got to describe to them what's going on out there. You know, and you run into a lot of people. <laughs> okay. But we ended up having a laugh about it, and, and it brought us closer together. And, and we became, you know, reasonably good friends, as, as much with him as, as almost anybody in the garage. He was a great guy. My favorite Earnhardt story is the one that broadcaster Steve Burns told quite often. Uh, a local church wanted to pave their parking lot, didn't have the money to do it, and the preacher shows up at DEI one day to see Dale. You know, well, what's it going to cost? He said, well, you know, any, anything you'd care to give would be fine. He said, what's it going to cost to pave that lot? And he, the preacher told him how many thousand dollars it was going to, that the whole bill was going to be, and Dale wrote a check for it right there on the spot. Wow. He said, you tell anybody I did this, he said, I'll come up there with my bulldozer and backhoe, and I'll dig it all up. <laughs> that was Dale Earnhardt. That sure it was. That yeah. was Dale Earnhardt. The last thing we'd love to okay. show you is um, your thoughts on what you guys try to accomplish in a, in a broadcast. We try to do the show as if uh, we're three friends sitting around the TV set watching the show, which in a way we are. You know, we're looking at the monitor, we're looking at the racetrack, and, and trying to convey the sport um, to our friends at home. We're broadcasting qualifying and practice uh, and then and then getting ready for the race itself. So it, it becomes a full week, even though most of it doesn't look like work. Is it work? I'm blessed. Yeah. You know, I get to I get the best seat in the house. I get to sit with my friends who are absolute experts and we get to help educate, inform and entertain America about what a great sport this is. So how could you call that work? True. Now, have you ever driven in a rental car with either one of those great drivers that you broadcast with and they have scared you to death? Yes. Just to, just to get a rise out of you? Yes. And can you share that story with us? <laughs> we, in the early days of Fox, had to fly to Kentucky to do a Bush Series race and then get back to Pocono to bed and up early the next morning to broadcast the cup race. And we fly into the uh, Wilkes-Barre Scranton Airport and it's late and we're tired and we're not happy about all this running around. Oh, and it's raining and it's wet. And Daryl rented a Cadillac. <laughs> and he proceeded to broad slide and drift that thing all the way to Pocono <laughs> to the hotel with the rest of us all but screaming, you know, did he get a rise out of us? Absolutely. Did I ever forgive him for it? No, I won't ride with him. <laughs> but no, we're all, we're all good friends. The last time Jeff and I went somewhere, he insisted I drive. Really? I yeah. I mean, but let's face it. None of, the, none of us are there for the audition. 
-hmm. and certainly not, you know, certainly not behind the wheel. But yeah, we're we're good friends. We spend a lot of time together. We don't drive to a lot of places together. No. The interesting thing, uh, I think, the sport. It's been well documented that the sport is very much in a transition phase right now. Yes. Um, are you comfortable, as somebody that's been so close with, to the sport and as a broadcaster, as a news person, um, are you comfortable with the direction of where NASCAR is going? I am have now. they sort of righted the ship? Yes, they have. I, I think Jim France has added a very stabilizing influence. And he's brought the sport back to a lot of the basics. Uh, for 2019, a lot of new things are happening. Um, if you get caught in the garage with illegal parts, they're gonna put them out on display for everybody to see, like they used to when Dick Beatty ran the garage. And I think the biggest seismic shift in the way the sport is officiated is that beginning 2019, if your car fails post-race inspection, which is now being done on Sunday evening at the track, not back at the R&D Center on Tuesday. You fail post-race inspection, you lose your win. And everybody thinks it's a wonderful idea until the first guy gets disqualified, and then, you know, then things could be different. Right. Yep. I think it's a wonderful idea. Yeah. I really do. I think the fans and the teams will embrace it. Absolutely. I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been to, to sit here and listen to you as a NASCAR, a longtime NASCAR fan. Your voice is something that I've heard so, so many times throughout my life. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time to sit down with us and, and talk to us. Today. Well, sure. Thanks to you folks. And uh, thanks to Fox 8 for carrying the flag for us uh, as the number one rated NASCAR station in America. We, we like that moniker because <laughs> yes. there are a lot of NASCAR fans uh, in our area. Oh, by the way, we're at the Winston Cup Museum right in downtown Winston-Salem. Right. So the whole 33-year history of R.J. Reynolds' reign at the top of this sport as its title sponsor is here to look at. A lot of the trophies are here, great photographs, great race cars. So uh, come on down, give it a look. Absolutely. This place is amazing. Yeah, we've been in here a few times for some different things. And uh, yeah, it's definitely worth an afternoon, definitely worth a day. Uh, the Winston Cup Museum in Winston-Salem. Again, folks, that's this edition of Fox 8's podcast, Dirty Air. We really do appreciate your time. Mike Joy, thank you again. And we will visit you guys next time on Fox 8's Dirty Air. Thanks for listening to NASCAR Dirty Air. Follow us on myfox8.com. This has been a production of the Tribune Audio Network.